On Wednesday, January 3rd, I met with Mirav Lesham Gonen for morning coffee and an interview about her daughter Romy, a 23-year-old young woman so full of life and energy. Since October 7th, Romy has been held hostage by Hamas. Merav, Romy's father Eitan, their four additional children, their new partners, extended family, friends, and many others have devoted themselves without pause to advocating for the release of all the hostages. And of course, they all desperately want their Romy home now. Today, we speak in depth with Merav about that surreal day three months ago. Since then, so much has changed, but time stands still. She and all her family have been completely focused on saving Romy and all the remaining hostages, however possible. In the coming days, we will share a podcast interview with Romy's father, Eitan Gonen, who I first met while visiting the Northern Front recently. The Gonen family parents live in a beautiful village in northern Israel called Kfar Vradim, Village of Roses. Until October 7th, Romy lived in Tel Aviv. After finishing her army service, Romy and her best friend Gaia went on a seven-month trip in South America. On October 7th, after more than four hours of terror, which began at the Nova Music Festival and which Romy and Gaia attended, they were together, the two best friends, in a car, and they thought they were finally on their way to safety. Of the four passengers in the vehicle, Romy is the only survivor. Merav Leshem Gonen was on the phone with Romy in those final moments. She heard the chaos, firing of machine guns, terrorists yelling in Arabic, and then silence. Her story is gut-wrenching. She has the courage and fortitude to speak out. We should all listen. I'm Vivian Berkovich, former Canadian ambassador to Israel and now living in the awesome state of Tel Aviv. Stay with us. Good morning. If it is a good morning, Merav Leshemgonen in Tel Aviv on the morning of Wednesday, January 3rd. Thank you so much for meeting with me and taking the time to speak to state of Tel Aviv. Good morning. It is a good morning. It's oh. not the morning I wish it will be, but it's a good morning because we woke up and we are strong and we are still and we will do everything we can to bring Romy back and to bring all the other hostages that held in, in the hands of Hamas. And when we were speaking earlier, Merav, you made a point, neither one of us quite remembered the exact date, but you did remember the day of the war. And that is how many days has Romy, your daughter, been in captivity in Gaza? Yes, it's 89 days of the 7th of October for me. I know the world moved to 2024, but we didn't. We are still at the 7th of October for 89 days. Yeah, your lives are kind of suspended. Yeah. From the outside looking in, because that's what I'm doing, even if I can empathize and support and feel pain. It's nowhere near yours. What is it like? Can you even articulate this 
crazy, surreal drama, which is a bad word, but situation that you've been thrown into. For us, we moved to another dimension, like we moved to a different universe where it works different. It's not, I cannot explain, it's like life is totally different. I don't remember the people I used to hang out with before the 7th of October, which is, are not related to the situation now. It's like yesterday came in by surprise. I didn't know. It came in a, a very good friend of mine that I haven't seen for a few months. Usually if I would met him like that, I would be very happy and recognize him immediately. And I opened the door and I wasn't sure he, who he was. I wasn't sure where we met, and it was that's how we feel. So you were saying that you this good friend walked in and you couldn't even place him or yes, yes, exactly. It, it took me a few seconds, a few long seconds to make sure I know who he is. And that's how I feel. It's like everything was put aside. It's a different universe. We just moved in the, in one minute. We moved from one universe, which is very happy. And very joyful, and life was very good to us, and a happy family. Everybody is healthy at last, and uh, suddenly we moved into a dark place. So I'm sorry to ask you to do this, but I'm going to take you back to that morning of Saturday, October 7th. I know that between you and your former spouse, who is Romy's father, Eitan, and Yarden, your eldest daughter, that there was always somebody on the phone with Romy from about 6.30 in the morning, but that the signal, because you're in the middle of nowhere with these kids at this festival, and that the cell signals kept going in and out, that the phone calls kept getting interrupted and people were calling back. So on top of all this chaos... There's this frantic and interrupted communication. But you were in the last moments before she was taken. Yeah. You were on the phone with Romy. Can you tell us, because that's the moment when your life went from what you just described as this quite lovely, happy, full life to the hell in which you've lived since. Yes, I think this whole uh, story starts with the, the first phone call she called me at 6.35. And then we closed the phone and she called her uh, sister, Yarden, and ended with a phone call she called me at 10.14. A phone call which was ended at 10.58. Well, we were with her while the rocket started and we were with her when she was trying to run away with a Gaia's car. And then they moved to another car, and then they moved to the bushes. We were either on the phone with her or on WhatsApp. They were hiding in the bushes for, I don't know, I'm checking all the time in the WhatsApp because I don't exactly remember the timeline of, of what went there. But I know that at 5 past 10, she called me and said that Ben Shimoni, Gaia's uh, good friend, uh, is coming back to take them out. And I was relieved a little bit, and we sent them where to drive. We told them to go to the south and not to the north. And But she didn't see the message. 
but we were a little bit relieved because we understood there is a, the situation is, is not something we met before. And then I got the phone call at 2014, starting with the words, Mommy, I was shot. And I was, you know, I couldn't grasp it even. And she said, I w- I'm bleeding and I think I'm going to die. And I was, you know, alarmed. And she said, Gaia is not answering and the driver is truly dead. And I said, you're not going to die. You have to take care of yourself. You have to bandage yourself. You're not going to die. And I was trying to tell her how to manage because I know she knows what to do. And then I heard another voice saying, my name is Ophir Tzorfati. Please call my mom and tell her. And I said, tell her what? And he said, tell her I was here. And, you know, the word's now taking a, a different course because Ophir Tzorfati was hurt. He was shot. He was shot badly, and we didn't know that at that time, but they were both taken to Gaza in a field, uh, dead that day or the day after. They didn't treat him. Uh, he was went, I guess, too badly. If he didn't, if we hadn't had that talk and he didn't spoke to me, his mother wouldn't even know where he is, and the army wouldn't know where he is because they found his body only. Um, a little bit more than, I think, five or six weeks, five weeks ago. So now I understand. When I look back, I understand why he said what he said. Ophir Tzafati was celebrating his 27th birthday at the music festival with his girlfriend, Shoval. His body was retrieved from the Gaza Strip in an IDF operation on December 1st, allowing him a dignified burial in Israel. In the madness of October 7th, he ensured that Shaval escaped before him, and he then hitched a ride with the car being driven by Ben Shimoni, in which Gaia and Romy were passengers. Ben Shimoni, it is important to note, is a hero. He had attended the music festival and escaped with four others to Beersheba, a city of 200,000 people, about a 30-minute drive from the site of the Nova Massacre. He immediately turned around to save additional desperate people being hunted by Hamas gunmen. Ben Shimoni went back. Again, he returned from the inferno with five passengers, strangers, and then he received a phone call from Gaia Khalifa, Romy Gonen's best friend. Gaia asked Ben, her very close friend, if he could help them. He did. But this final journey into the heart of darkness proved to be his last. Merav Leshem Gonen and Eitan Gonen speak in our conversations about Ben Shimoni and his incredible bravery. He was 31 years old when murdered by Hamas. We return now to Merav. But going back to the, 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 the beginning of the call, eh, we were talking and I was trying to tell her, she said that the car is not moving and she cannot move herself. I don't, I don't know why. This is things we only will know when she will come back. But I was on the phone with her, trying to tell her that we will rescue her, trying to ask her what is the 
car color or where they are and and we, we thought maybe we will send the police or maybe we send the army but nothing the police didn't answer we couldn't do anything because we didn't understand the amount of we didn't grasp, grasp what really happened there and then when I understand understood it we cannot help her we cannot send anybody there and she was saying you know I think I'm alone here mommy and I I smell fire around me and she was saying that Gaia is not answering for a long time. I think she knew that Gaia was dead already. And we heard the guns around the car. Uh, and then in a few last minutes, uh, we heard the guns come closer, the shooting come closer, and then shouting in Arabic, a lot of men shouting in Arabic, talking between themselves. And then they tried to, they opened the car door and they tried to start the car but couldn't. And then, uh, as I understand now, because I didn't listen to the recording until this week, but when we heard the recording again this week, I heard that they were taking her out and dragging her. And that's what I heard. I heard my daughter kidnapped in, you know, in life. Did she say anything in that moment? No, she was... I understand that there was a moment when they came closer to the car that she pretended dead. Right. So she didn't talk, she didn't move, she didn't do anything. And I was quiet. I was frozen. Not really frozen because I was there and I was very intended on listening what is going on. And, and I, I didn't talk so they will not hear me also and, and, and maybe we'll not close the, the phone. So it took them a lot of time until they closed the phone, the, the conversation. And then when they hang the phone, I had another mission, very difficult one, to, to call Ophir's mother. And it was something, I think, one of the hardest things I ever did, to call him a mother and tell her that her son was kidnapped, probably kidnapped. And when I was calling Rachel, this is Ophir's mother, I asked her, I told her that my name is Merav, and my daughter was in the party, in the festival, like your son Ophir. And uh, I just wanted to ask if you know where Ophir is. And she said, yes, I think they arrived one of the kibbutzim. And for a moment, I believed it. I thought, okay, maybe I didn't know. And she knows better. And then she asked her daughter to call Ophir's uh, girlfriend. And she was calling her. And then she was saying his girlfriend that he didn't come with her. She arrived to the kibbutzim, but he went on another car. And she was coming back to me, hysteric, oh. and started asking questions. And I couldn't tell her everything because I heard Ophir on the phone. I heard him breathing very, very, you know, indifficult. I, I couldn't believe he was still alive, but I couldn't tell her that. So I just said what I know. And from that moment, we were trying to find who was the driver to find his name. And then when we found out, we, tr we were trying to, to find them. In every, it, there were a lot of excels running in a lot of groups. I don't remember how many WhatsApp groups I entered in trying to look for all the four of them because they were together. So for us, it was finding one is finding maybe the others. I want to pause and just allow you to absorb the intensity of Mirav's testimony. She is awakened early on a Saturday morning. It also happens to be a special holiday in Israel. 
And for more than four hours, she is listening to an incomprehensibly savage attack as it unfolds in real time. She hears the ongoing massacre. She hears people dying, her daughter's primal terror. And she and thousands of other Israelis, actually hundreds of thousands, who are following this insanity, joining WhatsApp groups formed in a panic. Everyone is frantic, trying to find out where their loved ones and friends and relatives are. What the hell is going on? It makes no sense. We all know people who live in that area that was attacked. People who were at the music festival. The government was nowhere. The army was nowhere. The people were left utterly abandoned in this dreadful moment to fend for themselves. Not until late on Sunday night, October the 8th, almost two full days after the attack was launched, did Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu take to the airwaves to address a nation in shock. And what he said was dreadfully inadequate. But that, of course, is for another day. Mirav now tells us about how she went to make a police complaint at the office of a special unit in Israel, which, as she remarks, was just totally weird. And only at night, at, at, at midnight, we arrived to uh, Love 433, which is the police station, and we filed a complaint. It's a weird situation to That's, file a complaint. Yeah. It, you know, I didn't understand what, what exactly, what file a complaint on what. But we needed to give DNA so they can look for uh, the people. We I didn't know already what happened because uh, I'm not looking, I'm not watching TV at all for 18 years. So I didn't exactly knew what happened. I just heard from pieces or, and I, I didn't want to hear. We were at 4.33 until 4 o'clock in the morning. And then an officer said, okay, um, maybe you will join a group in the WhatsApp so we will be able to send you updates. They didn't really know. They didn't understand what happened also. And we joined the group. I didn't want to join it because it felt like too much for me. And then somebody said there is a press conference of the people, of the parents, of the kids that were missing from the Nova Festival. And I just, I, my daughter said, you have to go, mommy, to support. And I said, I, want, I don't want to go. And she said, if you will not go, I will come from the north. And I said, okay, I will go. And then I came to the press conference and they asked me if I want to talk and tell about what, I, what we've been through on this Saturday, and I said, okay. And from that moment, I was, it's like we were, we were entering a new... Twilight zone. Yeah. And, but this opened this forum, this families, the hostages and the missing persons hostage forum. And I think this is one of the reasons we managed to bring 113 people back now. And this is how we will bring all the rest. I just want to be clear for our listeners that you have this indescribable October 7th when you start to comprehend the incomprehensible and that your daughter 
Romy, who's 23 years old, is in this horrific situation. And it was the following day on Sunday, October 8th, that the press conference was called. And all of the days since then, as you've said, have really blurred into one. Yeah, There really is no time for you in the way it is for people in, quote, normal life. Yes. And I know that you've been a very effective advocate, both in English and in Hebrew, because I've seen you and heard you among other groups that you've met with. You've met with politicians, you've met with the public, you've met with the press, but you've also, you were telling me earlier, met with the International Red Cross. And I believe during the first week following October 7th, you had a meeting in Israel with Red Cross representatives. Can you tell us a bit about that? Yeah, it was that first week was, we did, we until now, we are doing everything we can, meeting everybody, every influencing uh, group, organization, uh, person in the, both in, in Israel and outside Israel. And that Saturday I had two meetings, one with the European... European Union? Not European Union. Wow. Mirav and I took a time out to be certain of the identity of the European official with whom she had met. Her life was a blur and was particularly so in that first week. She met with Ursula von der Leyen, president of the European Commission, which we discuss now. It was a hectic week. I can't imagine. You, on the Friday following Saturday, October 7th, you and I'm assuming others met with Ursula von der Leyen. Yeah, it was a, another family, just two of us. Yeah. She was talking about her grandmother that was in, I think it was Yafa Adar that was also hostage. And I was talking about Romy. And she was wonderful. She said we, they don't have much power in this case, but they will try to do everything they can. She was moved by the story. She was crying and asking the camera to close the camera. And, and afterwards, we ran to the Red Cross meeting. Right after and meeting with, with Ms. One Wonderland. of them was, I don't remember even if the Red Cross was before. I think the Red Cross was the first meeting. And then we went to the European. We did Doesn't everything matter. we can. No, it's not important. Just telling about how important it was and how uh, hectic all the days look like. It's right. also today. So we met with the Red Cross, and we even brought, we were five families, I think, and each family brought the, the situation, the, the medical situation of the hostage they know. It wasn't for them to take care only for those hostages, that, just to make an example. We came with the list, right. a long list of all the hostages we knew already been there. We didn't know about every, everybody. It took time to understand how many hostages are there. And... They were very nice to us and everything, and Tele saying they will try to do whatever they can, but they are, cannot move if the other side is not allowing them to go inside, etc. So it was, for me, it was a little bit frustrating because they understood it's, you know, they are not independent. They are, if they cannot do move by themselves, but they are waiting for others to move, it's not something we can use. We need organizations and uh, leaders that uh, are willing to, to take things into their hands and make a move. But if uh, this is an organization that 
needs to wait for uh, another one's permission and uh, they're not they cannot do any and I, I thought it was pointless to waste energy on it but our uh, medical team was on it all the time and they are still on it all the time to make sure that the Red Cross will do whatever they can I yeah I have to say as an outside observer and I do understand the principle and concept of neutrality for a humanitarian organization and What I don't understand is the Red Cross's parent lack of willingness to even raise with Qatar or Hamas directly the possibility of taking medication in. That's all. And that, you know, that's something I'd like to separately take up with the Red Cross because I would think that's their function. I, I commend your restraint to sit in such a meeting when your daughter is in. being held and at that time 240 plus or minus other ind- human beings being held captive by Hamas I don't know that I would be able to manage your the self-control that you seem to show as you're in this meeting with the Red Cross this is almost a week after your daughter has been you assume kidnapped based on the phone call Yeah, we, we were almost sure the phone call was located in Gaza and I heard it on live that she was kidnapped and it wasn't a question a real question although I think we we would like at that time to think that maybe she's still missing and she will pop out somewhere but uh, at a point at one point it was already it's either she's dead or taken and I wasn't sure what is better I can understand and empathize with Because I think that many people probably felt similarly, and we know there was one parent who was first was told that his young daughter had been killed, and he expressed relief, and then later learned that she actually was alive and in captivity, and he's absolutely thrilled that she is alive, but yeah. there's such extreme situations, and the uncertainty is is so corrosive, yes. devastating. But it's now it's still uncertainty because we know she was alive five weeks ago and I'm I feel she's alive I think I wouldn't know if something would change but it's been five weeks that we haven't get any information about her are you concerned with what is going on in Israel this is not just another crisis State of Tel Aviv is committed to delivering superb and candid analysis, and we're offering a limited-time subscription special, a 33% discount from the regular fee of $90 annually, one year for only $60. Stay informed and stay connected with State of Tel Aviv. We are a reader-supported enterprise. If you value our work, please subscribe. It makes a huge difference. Stateoftelaviv.com All one word. Now, back to the podcast. So the last information that you received was at day 55 following the release of some hostages yeah. who had said that they had seen Romy yes. in the tunnels. Yes. What did they tell you in addition? Is there anything else you can share? Uh, well, there isn't much of, of, uh, of details that I can share, but They said she was she's strong or she's trying to be strong and she's she's alive and that her wound is not treated well. 
she couldn't almost move her hand or her fingers and that the fingers started losing, changing color, which is not good. And she needs a medical treatment very badly. Romy has also a kidney issue, stones in the kidney from time to time. It's like chronical and she has asthma, a kind of asthma. And she has uh, sinusitis. And I just think of her being in the tunnels uh, with not enough air and too much humidity and... Stress. Yes. Stress will often not help either. Yes. And, uh, and one of the things I ask from people is to keep their faith that she's alive, they are alive, and just think about it all the time. Not think about frightening things or issues that can happen in captivity, but maintain on thinking and sending good vibes and good energy. I'm just sure and positive that this can also help us keep her alive and keep her energy high. I agree with you. And many people who you don't know are with you in that supportive way. Were you, did you learn anything about her time in the tunnels Do you know if she's been kept isolated or if she's at least had the company of other hostages? We know that at first she was alone and she was together with other women for the, at least the two, last two weeks of those days when the last, last hostages came back. And that's all we know. We don't know much. We don't know. In some details, we're not sharing yet. Of course. When Mirav and I spoke, 34 days had passed since the family had last received any concrete information about Romy. Since then, the frenetic pace of meetings and working to keep the plight of the hostages at the forefront of so many issues has been what motivates Mirav and all of the Gonen family. Day in, day out. So I know that throughout this period, you've also been meeting with anyone who can help to bring awareness and, of course, bring Romy and the other hostages home. Is there any particular meeting that you felt was, partic- was helpful, advanced the cause, increased awareness? Well, I think there were a lot of meetings that were important and, and just it's not just raising awareness, it's, it's pulling people into this. It's not a struggle, but it's not a war. It's, it, you have to, people has to be focused on or understand what they do and how they can help and be together and why they need to be together in order to really help. Because I believe it's all about being together in this situation. It, the Hamas didn't ask if you're a Jew. They didn't ask if you're a, a, what is your political attitude. They didn't ask if it's a woman, it's a man, it's elders, it's babies, it's everything. And, you know, I live in the north of Israel. And we live amongst the Arab speakers. It's all kind of Arab speakers. We also talk about Arabs like it's one. It's not. So Israel is not one. It's a lot of different people. Thai people were taken, German, 
the attack wasn't against Israel, the attack was against humanity. I ask Mirav to comment on the almost immediate denial of the October 7th massacre and continuing atrocities. Her response surprised me, simply because she appears to assume that it is shock and perhaps naivete that is behind the denial of October 7th. But we know that there are also vicious, malevolent people and countries and institutions and terrorist groups that believe that October 7th was a righteous act of resistance. I would not, of course, raise that with Mirov, but thought it important to note here. And I think it's easy not to believe that this could happen to us because I look at the American people and they look like us. We look similar. We wear the same things. We have same hobbies, a way of talking and democracy. And it's very hard to really believe that this can happen to you. And if you cannot believe it can happen to you, this, this, this nightmare, this, this, it's unimaginable that a democracy like Israel, which is very strong and has a very strong army, and the people of very opinion people, it really can happen to them. Raping, butchering, something on the third world people, not for democracies like Israel. So I can see why people in the U.S. and maybe in Europe cannot relate to it as something that can happen, really happen in Israel because they look at us and see we are the same. We look the same. It cannot happen to us, so it cannot happen to you. And that's why the denial starts. And I do understand it, but just stop for a little, stop for a minute and look at it and, and hear us. In your meetings, were you by chance um, one of the families participating in the meeting with Prime Minister Netanyahu when he eventually sat down with the hostages? I believe it was a month in. Hostage families, uh, sorry. Uh, we had so many meetings. The first meeting with the prime minister was two weeks after the 7th of October. And one of the things that led to this, to this meeting is the fact that the president talked to us, met us a week before. One week after the 7th of October, the president asked to meet us. And he met a lot of families and heard us and heard the stories, and he took the Prime Minister another week to meet with us, and, and still that meeting was something we had to push for. Right. And we had, I was at the, it's Saturday, the 21st of October, I was at the channels 13, channel 12, channel 11, one after the other, and I heard the spokesman of the army talking about the war and didn't mention the hostages with even once, and he, all, all, he only talked about the targets of the war, which is uh, taking out Hamas, and not a word about the hostages. And I was so frustrated, and I said it in, in Channel 12. And then it changed something. In the evening, the spokesman for the army already spoke about the hostages, and the day after we managed to have a meeting with the prime minister, in that evening, he changed the target of the war. And one of the targets was bringing back the hostages. It took us two weeks. If we had to work so hard inside Israel. I think that's the sort of stuff that we're all going to be addressing when everybody's home. Yes. 
you know what I'm afraid of? That if the hostages' arrival will be delayed too much, the people in Israel will not wait until they will come back and demand the answers now. How long can you hold yourself and be restrained? And I'm not sure that the people will be able to hold much longer without getting some answers. Mirav is referring, of course, to the paralysis that seemed to afflict the civilian government and the IDF for some time following the attack. The shock surged through the nation. Arabs, Druze, Bedouin, Jews, Christians, Muslims, Thai nationals, people from more than 30 countries were murdered, mutilated, and taken hostage. A Tanzanian agricultural student was so mercilessly butchered. And as with so many crimes that day, the Hamas terrorists filmed everything. They exulted in their savagery. Israel exists for one reason, to ensure the physical safety of its citizens within its national borders. This attack went on for more than eight hours with virtually no resistance or organized response from the state. Only rogue first responders and older men who had served in the IDF dared to venture into the war zone, where Hamas carried on with the carnage uninterrupted. We know today that very small numbers of Israeli security officials and IDF soldiers went south to assist. We also know that the military and government were blindsided by the Hamas attack. Any meaningful resistance took forever. Anyone working to repel the attack was wildly outnumbered and receiving no support from IDF commanders or anyone. It was sheer chaos. The rage that is being suppressed by Israelis towards the government and the IDF is simply not going to be controlled for much longer. That is what Mirav is saying. It is just all too much. Do you believe something will move? If there is another hostage release, there are negotiations or discussions going on now. We're told what Hamas is saying, Qatar, is that it will be 40 to 50, and it would be the remaining women and the elderly. This is, of course, something you would hope for. I would hope for everybody to go out. And uh, I'm not just holding my hope. We are doing actions. I don't believe in just hoping and waiting and, and praying. I believe in real actions. And I think our responsibility, all of us, is to push our leaders to make sure the leaders will do the move because this is their responsibility. We are doing everything we can to change and move uh, the world to a different place, to take responsibility over what is what was happening. Because again, as I said, it could happen any other place. And it, it's not just the responsibility of uh, Israel uh, government. It is fully, for sure, because it, it happened inside Israel. But it is also the responsibility of the big leaders of the world Absolutely. to make sure this will not happen again and, and to check why this was happening in Gaza. Because the situation in Gaza, it's not just Israel's responsibility. 
the whole world is, has his, his hands inside Gaza. It's Saudi, it's uh, Egypt, it's Qatar, it's the United States. And yes, I expect all the leaders that feel themselves as the big leaders of the world to make sure all these people will go out now and do whatever they can to make sure they will go out now. Otherwise, they will take them out in body bags because uh, I see what happens to the men. We all saw the pictures. I, I, I don't want to mention names, but if people will look, they will find what happened to the men inside. And I expect the world to make the moves to make sure they will go out, all the people that are still alive and all the bodies to take out of there. I want to just finish with something that is so important that we also discussed earlier over coffee. We're close in age, you and me, and we grew up benefiting so much from the women's movement and the opportunities that it opened up for us as young women coming of age and in adulthood, professional life. Women's organizations throughout the world were silent so long. How do you understand the silence on the part of all of these women's organizations worldwide when faced with a crime that is filmed in real time where we have survivor testimony We have forensic evidence. It's there. And yet, the world was silent when it came to women. How do you process that? How do you understand that? Again, I think it's the Israeli women. It's not against, well, I guess if it happened any other place, they would raise a voice. I cannot explain and talk for them why they didn't do it for the two months that passed until they managed to find their voice. I cannot explain. I cannot advocate for them. I can only return to the one thinking I have that maybe the fact they didn't say a thing, this is because they didn't want to believe this can happen to them because we look the same and we look strong and, and it's very easy to advocate for a weak person. It's very hard to advocate for somebody who has a strong one. And when they look at Israel, they see strong people. strong people, strong country, and it's very hard for them to think they look like us, as I said before. Right. And maybe it happened, really happened, because it can happen to us. And this is the only advocate I can give in this case. But they need to explain how come they forgot to raise the voice and say something and, and join with us together in this horrific events we had and what we are going through since then. And I want them to listen to the evidence, to read the evidence. At least 30 women evidences can be read now. Uh, and then they have to say what happened to them, what happened, why they were silent for two months. I want them to come. I don't need the apology, but I need their voice to come and say, we are standing with you. And we will help to make sure the world will be a better place. And we will make sure... To help you do whatever we can to bring those women and also these men back. This is something they will have to answer for. Uh, and I hope they will find their voice now and stand very strongly in the demand of making sure this will not happen in any other place. I'm sitting across from you now for about an hour, and I've spoken to you on a few occasions. You have such fortitude and strength, but I see how vulnerable you are. and the agony that you have yes. to live with. Yes. 
I want to thank you so much for agreeing to speak. Every time I know must be very, very difficult. And as a mother with two daughters very close in age to your Romy, my heart, soul, and every fiber of my being is with you and will do what I can to help bring Romy and all of the hostages home. But let me ask you one final question. What can others do? Is there anything that people listening to this podcast can do to help bring Romy and all of the hostages home? I have five kids. Romy is my third one. She's the glue in the family. She's the light because she's in the middle and she connects between the small one and the big ones. And since October 7th, uh, my two elders and my fourth uh, are doing everything they can. And they are young. They are meeting with uh, people that has another voice and can raise voices in other places. They've been to United Nations. They've been to the Red Cross. They've been to anywhere they can. And, and this is except interviewing that they are doing also. My small one is still small, but he's doing his part in, in staying very strong and, and trying to live whatever he can, however he can. He's pretty much alone because he's in the north, but he's young. And as I see from the outside, looking at other people, everybody can do one small thing that can change the, the course of history now. It's either raising the voice, is it either changing the, the public opinion by speaking, by talking, by learning the real details, not what they think and afraid to know, and, and finding the influencing people that can help us. It can be either influencers or celebs or even government, uh, people that has a domination and, and, and probably can press and help in other places which are more underneath the table, not always outside and, and raising voices. Each and every person can do one small thing that can help changing the course of history, not just for us in Israel, but also for the world. So... I, I guess this is what I'm asking. Please do something. Don't look away. Just be with us, not because we are weak, because we need to be strong together. Thank you so much, Mirav, for taking the time again and speaking with State of Tel Aviv. And I hope that Romy is home very, very soon. And I'd love to see you again in a few months in happier times. Me too. Thank you very much, Vivian. Thanks. I spoke with Mirav Leshem Gonen on Wednesday morning at the headquarters for the Forum for Hostage Families. They operate out of a building in Tel Aviv, very close to the Hostage Square, which has become a public gathering spot for rallies, concerts, art installations, and just groups of family, friends, and the general public. Please remember that Romy Gonen is still a hostage, likely terrified in a tunnel beneath Gaza. Her hand is badly wounded, and she desperately needs medical treatment. It is believed that Hamas still holds 139 civilian hostages. How many remain alive is less certain. Coming soon, an interview with Romy's father, Eitan Gonen, a portrait of a family hanging on and hoping it is so important that we listen. It's the least we can do. Thanks so much for staying with us to the end. Mm -hmm.
Thanks so much for listening to this episode of the State of Tel Aviv and Beyond podcast. We'll keep the dispatches coming as frequently as we can. If you like what you're hearing, please take a moment, rate us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you're listening. You can check out our full library of articles and podcasts at our website, stateoftelaviv.com. State of Tel Aviv is an independent media venture, and we rely on subscribers to support our work. If you are not yet a paying subscriber, please consider taking the plunge today. Each person really does make a huge difference, especially in these very challenging times in Israel. It is important that you stay informed and current and seek out a range of perspectives. This is a pivotal moment in Israeli history. It is not a time to be passive and disengaged. Thanks for sticking with me to the end. I'm Vivian Berkovich, signing off from deep inside the state of Tel Aviv. Thank you.